0: Gosh, golly, gee whiz. I might need stronger stuff than that. I might need a, a sort of more hundred-proof words. So if you can't handle some real obscenity, go find another podcast. There, you have been forewarned.
1: Although uh, and Jessica- they gave – I have to tell you, like one of the beautiful things is like they, they actually changed the titles of movies. Right. Top Gun is uh, Love in the Heavens. <laughs> what? Hebrew. <In April>. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Hello, Jews et al. This is Unorthodox. I am your master of ceremonies, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by deputy editor Stephanie Butnick, sup, and senior, or is that senior, writer Leah Libowitz. Ah, uh, si, si, senor. Shalom. <laughs> that was your jubin uh, mélange. Um, our Jew of the week is the very Jewy writer Daphne Merkin, author of the new memoir This Close to Happy: A Reckoning with Depression. <laughs> That'll be uplifting. And our Gentile of the week is Episcopal priest Ed Bacon, which it occurs to me is a fabulous name for a Gentile so It's like the
2: absolute best. Are you sure he's not Jewish?
0: Yeah. The Gentiles should the all have to take Ed? the last name Fuck Bacon. Fuck you, you will never be able to eat that. <laughs> in the world in which Jews have to wear a little yellow star, the Gentiles should have to take the last name Bacon.
2: Do you think it's, a, you think it's annoying if your last name actually is Bacon and you have like this serious job and people are like... So what's your six degrees? Well,
1: that's exactly right. In the theological
2: seminaries,
0: like you and Jesus, six degrees. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jews, what's up? Anything going on? We got some serious news of the Jews, some serious NOTJ this week. But but let's let's just take a beat. Are any news from the home front?
2: No news from the home front. I got nothing.
0: At our house, it is already in deep passover vegetarian cooking matzah lasagna's flourless chocolate cakes rebecca has been drafted this year as a helper no such thing
2: as a free trip to israel can i tell you ma- no
0: free trips to israel <laughs> can i tell you matzah lasagna really sounds like
1: one of the more revolting things it i've ever seen? it honestly
2: sounds like vegan lasagna
1: it's like it's uh, actually
2: pretty good the
0: matza gets really moist you know if and, you take like um, two
1: things that are wrong they do not make a
0: right, <laughs> right? <laughs>
2: i'd say i love matzah pizza like it will always take me back
0: it it will always take you back to hillel Pizza dinners. So no, to like Passover. Passover,
2: my parents had like growing up. Oh, and they just, went... like you would eat like on day three. You'd be like, "Screw it, I'm having matzo pizza." <laughs> Did they order it from the local? <laughs> no, wild... no. Like you just took a piece of matzo. you put some tomato sauce on it. I see. I see. Sprinkled yeah, some cheese. Put it in the the micro, the as toaster. my grandma calls it, and go from there.
0: News of the Jews. In Iran, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei told a gathering of fellow clerics that feminism is a Zionist plot. Yes, queen. <laughs> yes, Ayatollah. <laughs> Making women a commodity and an object of gratification in the Western world is most likely among Zionist plots to destroy the society, he said. It's
2: true. That's like one of the right? best things anyone said about Zionism in a while. Yep. <laughs> That's right. I'll take it. Mm-hmm. I'll take it. Um, how about this? This is a this is this is a fine
0: week for news of the Jews. Uh, Auschwitz was closed briefly as nude protesters slaughtered sheep. <laughs>
2: I genuinely don't understand this story. I tried to follow it and just didn't get it. Yeah, I read it
1: like three times. Like, hold on. Why are they nude? Why are they, <laughs> why are they slaughtering naked? sheep? What, what are was they, their
0: cause? What are they protesting again? <laughs> so I'll just read briefly from from the article in the foreword. Uh, the memorial site at Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp in Poland was closed for a short time on Friday due to the actions of a group of about a dozen protesters who slaughtered a sheep, lit a fire, took off their clothes, and chained themselves to the famous gate that reads Arbeit Macht Frei, Work Sets You Free. The protesters. But why? All, wait, pause. Just wait a moment, Stephanie. I can't. The pa- the protesters also draped a white banner emblazoned "Love" over the famous sign. Oh, that explains a sp- it. A spokesman for the Auschwitz Memorial said the protesters' motives were not clear, but some reports suggested that the group was protesting against the armed conflict in Ukraine. <laughs> Once again the question
1: is asked in Auschwitz, <laughs> why did this have to happen?
2: And there was one headline that was like Auschwitz shut down after protest. And I was like, Auschwitz was shut down a while ago. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Not like just a it was a, very jarring, yeah, like, it was a very jarring headline. I was like, okay. It's like, oh no, Auschwitz <laughs> no longer in operation. I, was like, oh, damn. <laughs> I don't know. I don't I don't like it.
0: Nor did the, <laughs> the sheep. But the most important story of the week, obviously, and we'll let's Let's hit the minor key here, uh, is that an Israeli-American teen was arrested for phoning in many, although possibly not all, of the bomb threats to Jewish community centers. By the
1: way, we're literally hitting the minor key. He's a minor. He literally is a
0: minor Israeli-American teen. A minor Israeli celebrity like Gal Gadot. The Israeli police didn't name the suspect but did release a copy of one of the phone calls that he made. And here is the actual audio. This is no joke. This is actually the audio released by the Israeli police.
3: It's a C4 bomb
1: surrounded by a bag, by a bag. There's there's, there's a lot of scolastro. There's going to be a bloodbath that's going to take place in a short time. It's going
0: to take place in a short time. I think I told you enough. I must go. I think it was a woman.
2: Wow. That's so (laughs) disturbing. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I gotta tell you. Okay, so look, um, it's a very serious topic. Huge chanda for the going. Lots we, of get, children. We get traumatized, it. A lot of people right. traumatized. We get it. At the same time, usually when you call in like these calls, you use this like tough guy voice masking. For some reason, he he used the like nana
2: filters. Like a lot of no, people the are
1: going to be hurt.
2: <laughs> so when police went to his house basically they found like a room full of voice altering software things That's like so that great. and so he clearly obviously masked his voice. Right, he used
1: the Joe Lieberman <laughs> Filter. It's very <laughs> weird. It's like A whole lot of Jews are going to be uncomfortable this afternoon. The best part is at the end. was like, "I've said enough. Yeah, I must gotta go. go. I must go. Gotta go now. <laughs> don't worry about me. I'll just sit alone here in the dark.
0: Nobody calls." I mean, let's sort this out. I will. I will go on the line and say that first of all, I think that a lot of the Jewish community overreacted during the bomb threats. I think people who want to kill Jews don't call in the threats. I think they just blow us up. And I think that. Um, that giving that is, by the guy- way, historically
1: true. You know, there has never been a call in like a call center, like an operator in Munich, being like, "Hello, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> this is
2: Adolf here. Uh, I would like to call in the threat to the community center." Yeah, but right. what about I, like right. what about like in the Purim story where Heyman, like sets up this whole lottery? Like that was very very public, right? In, he doesn't in call in the threat, but in advance there but was but a the lot lottery
0: of- like. The, the plan was underway and, and this is – this whole sort of calling in the threat for the publicity, I think that there was too much reaction to it. I think they gave him exactly what he wanted. Point number two, a lot of people had this reaction like this is a thousand times worse that it's a Jewish guy doing it. I didn't think that at all. I'll just be perfectly frank and say I would much rather there be some deranged sicko Israeli teen with access to good voice masking software than that there be an anti-Semite. Gentile doing. I mean, I I was I had absolutely the opposite reaction, which is I feel much safer knowing you feel that It's, just,
2: it's, a, yeah, it's hey, look it's at the, the smart side. boy, just, shape. You know, just smart it, boy it, with his computer equipment. No, this weird just, layer of. First of all, I think it's still really. I think it's really creepy. Obviously, it is creepy. He's not the person who's you know desecrating cemeteries and, and overturning headstones. Like there are people who are actually doing that that we don't we haven't identified. And the fact that the two people who have been found to be calling these things in are sort of just, like, meh, you know, like, not actually carrying them out at all. And and they've... It, I don't know. That's not a relief to you? I mean, it is a relief. That it's not, like, it's some, a, totally. like, really cold, competent, calculating skinhead leader? Totally, but I also think there's this weird thing where all of a sudden it's, like, we've all gotten ourselves up in a tizzy, and, like, then it turns out to be this, like, kid doing some, like, prank.
1: Stefani, you want to know what the most terrifying thing here is? What? That three or four weeks ago, you know who said... It's probably going to be some Jew calling it in just to stir up attention. A- and here's the thing. Uh, I've I've made my deep, 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 deep disdain uh, for a president well-known. But at this point, you kind of got to think <laughs> he has like some weird like Messiah thing going on. He seems to really be like a, a divine lightning rod channeling this crazy energy. <laughs> How the fuck did he know that? That's, I mean, this I mean, is really,
2: really weird. weird. So th- that's basically the thing because what people who don't, who are not sympathetic to these cries of anti-Semitism are going to say is, look, there's no anti-Semitism. It was this kid in Israel. It was, you know, this like scorn journalist, like no one's actually, nothing's there are no threat to you. So that's why I do think while it is a relief that it's not like some creepy skinhead, it is. It remains problematic because now everyone's going to say, like, why are you guys complaining? You guys are fine. When, who's
1: calling in the bomb uh, threats at the JCCs? A Jew from Israel. Who is right. supporting Rasmia Odea a terrorist who killed two Israelis? Jewish voices for
2: peace. Yeah, it makes perfect okay, sense. So uh, <laughs> but to get back on track, I think it's weird to then say, like, but look at those cemeteries. And it's like, who cares? No one's even paying attention anymore, basically. Like, I think we've lost the current of... Like public sympathy, I think, in a lot of ways. But it, uh,
0: this all misunderstands the phenomenon of anti semitism, which is it doesn't start with us, but it ends with us, right? And so the fact that that we have a president who is so anti immigrant, who is so xenophobic, that is a problem for Jews, right? Even if initially it's a, it's it's manifest through attitudes towards you know immigrants coming into the country, toward Mexicans, toward Muslims, toward the people who helped us in Afghanistan and Iraq, and then got those special visas because they were going to be murdered in their home countries for having helped our army, and now are getting help up at border controls that empowers the white nationalist and the supremacist and the xenophobes. And then it ends with us. It's not in America. It doesn't start with us. So, Mark, what should the punishment be for this guy? Let's get let's get let's get. He, let's get he should be forced here. to sit in a cell and listen to someone else using that voice filter just yell at him.
2: So we have to say that he does have Shlomo. His, his Do lawyer have to go to
1: the courtyard now for exercise. His, his lawyer. <laughs> we, I think we
2: have to say that his lawyer is saying that he has a non-malignant brain tumor that affects his decision making or his, his behavior. Oh, so the like, old non-malignant. The brain old tumor. non-malignant <laughs> brain tumor. No, so like there there may be something. I mean. It's very likely that there's something wrong with him really, mentally. Think? The weird thing is like, By the way, what I'm do sorry, you do when you go to your Stephanie, kid's room and there's like this all this is, stuff? Right. But that's the kind <laughs> of stuff
1: that's like would be in any kid's room today. But Leo, can you you that imagine, stuff in his room? Could you imagine the J-Date profile here? <laughs> uh, slow-mo, uh, age 19, uh, hobbies include <laughs> prank skiing.
0: Calls. Well, look, as the only person here with a well-established history in prank phone calling, As we know from our first Yom Kippur episode, let me say that I wish him healing from his brain tumor and I wish him teshuva and repentance and let's all chill out at the JCC. Let's go have a sauna.
2: A little schvitz.
0: Hey, sometimes we hear from our fans and they wonder like, what what can we do to help? What can we do to help you guys? And of course, you know, the number one thing is you can give money at tabletmag.com slash donate. The money goes right to the bottom line. We run a lean, lean operation. Uh, You could advertise and you could find out more about that by emailing me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. You could rate us on iTunes, which would be amazing. And that really, really does help. People are looking for new podcasts. Like they go to iTunes they, oh, that's a four and a half star on average, or that's a five-star average. I'll check that one out. You could subscribe to our newsletter, which means that we're in closer touch with you. Uh, and that that would be cool. Um, and then there's also something that you can do to help the podcast community as a whole. And this is a project that all the podcasts that you listen to are all getting together to do for the month of March. It's the Tripod Initiative. That's hashtag T-R-Y-P-O-D, which is We know that a lot of people just don't know what a podcast is. It's like music or talking, but it lives in your phone. Uh, They just are confused by it. They've never pressed that app on their smartphone. So take one friend whom you love, whom you want to do a mitzvah for and say, hey, do you listen to podcasts? And if the answer is no, then just teach them how. Just grab their phone, press that button and show them how to search for podcasts. Just show them how to type something in and... Bam, a world of podcasts will show up. If it's our podcast you recommend, that's great. But if it's something totally random, that's okay too. In fact, you know what would be fun is if you are on Twitter, uh, use the tripod hashtag, but also tag us, tag at TabletMag, and tell us what you've been recommending. Like what do you listen to in addition to us? That would actually be really cool for us to know. So, you know, help spread podcasting throughout the known universe. Uh, Hashtag tripod, recommend something to a friend, and then let us know
3: about it.
2: Our Jewish guest this week is author and essayist Daphne Merkin, whose new book is This Close to Happy, A Reckoning with Depression. Welcome, Daphne.
3: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: We we're so excited to have you. This book is incredible. It is such a supremely um, insightful book. I, I, I'm, I'm going to start by reading uh, one of my favorite quotes okay. and, then, and then asking. asking. Sure. And this is early in the book, and you're right. The very murkiness surrounding depression, involving as it does both the biological and psychological component, has made it the phenomenological whipping boy of the ongoing heated nature-nurture debate about the evolution of our respective characters. It has become a magnet for the worst projections of both our Puritan heritage and our pill-happy contemporary moment, with the unfortunate result being that it is both underdiagnosed and
3: over medicalized. I think it's a little bit a subset of the mind brain dichotomy. Like, are we talking brain or are we talking mind when we talk depression? Meaning, is it an existential condition, sort of Samuel Johnson's constitutional melancholy, or is it a is it on an um, spectrum of mood? I think that's part of the the problem enigma of depression, and contributes to the stigma around depression. Everyone has bad moods, low moments. I quote someone in the book. It was actually Diane Keaton, the actress, who said to me when we were in, I think we were in a department store, she said to me, everyone's a little depressed. (laughs) Um, No one goes around and says everyone's a little schizophrenic. Right. (laughs) <laughs> I was thinking to myself. Everyone has a little bit of cancer, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think some of being depressed as one goes into a retreat and you don't communicate so much, partly protectively. But I think it's very hard for people to get what it is, that it can become severe enough that you end up in what I was called, I hate the term, a vegetative condition. You know, at my very, very worst, I did not speak. I had stopped eating, which was, in my case, a good thing. And um, (laughs) I barely moved. I mean, everything comes to a stop when you are that down. And then the the other part of it is, I think, an aspect of it that you are kind of bowing out while everyone else is sort of stupidly continuing to dance to the music of life. Stupidly. Running around, hailing cabs, you know, worrying about shit. Like, yeah. Right. You tend to then see everything as dark. I think I said depression is the loss of necessary illusions. You need a, a certain amount of ordinary illusion to get through everyday life. You can't go around seeing completely the darkest layer behind you know look at them going out to dinner don't they realize the futility of going out to dinner
2: <laughs> you have a really nice way of uh articulating the gender divide about mm-hmm. depression both the way men and women suffer the numbers and the the manner but also the way male and female writers throughout history have right. kind of have
3: described um depression i think the male narrative tends to present it as implicitly if not explicitly biological, as extraneous to the personality, as having to do with life events. So either reactive, or I quote this biologist, Lewis Walpert, an English, bio, a British biologist who wrote a book called, I think, Malignant Sadness, who said he couldn't get away from the biological. He doesn't know how to pull away from that. I think women. Like Sylvia Plath, it comes across as a interior condition that they've been living with in a million different ways since forever, not as plopping out of the sky and hitting them because they go off a sleeping pill or they stop drinking, which is more, as I said, the male right. So do you think that affects the way we we see depression as sort of this like
2: feminine, like, I guess, especially in women, does you think that it contributes to the stigma?
3: Yes. Actually, you're making a connection that I, I think it's a feminized disorder. First of all, in a psychiatric hospital, you will find mainly women. And that's that's statistically true. Men commit suicide more than women, but they don't end up in psychiatric hospitals. I guess they grimly one day jump out a window after s- shooting pool. They take care of business. <laughs> they they're care, men. They're men. <laughs> um, but it's a good point that that contributes a little bit to the treatment of it as sort of like a fainting, disease, a version of a fainting disease from the 19th century, that it is it is a bit feminized.
2: So you grew up in Manhattan in a very, very tight-knit uh, orthodox community, and you're Depression started early. Was yes. there, did you find a stigma in that community then? And I'm curious if you think it exists still today.
3: I certainly think there's a stigma. It's a little like a version of in, not in front of the Goyim, except the Goyim happen to be your fellow Jews. I mean, I think it's seen as sort of marring your. I don't know, your state of marriage ability, (laughs) if you're a girl. (laughs) Keep the shidduch away. My parents were German-Jewish, and there certainly wasn't a lot of love to go around, despite the fact that there was money... There was a certain amount of deprivation. There was no food, literally no food. There was a cook, but no food. (laughs) (laughs) There was no food. I look back on it. My sister said to me, were were we starved? I said, I don't know. I do remember being hungry a lot. My mother's psychology was her family had left Germany in 1936, and her father rather singularly was an Orthodox early Zionist. He went on to start the Aguda Party. In Israel. And she left Israel, and I think her family was all there. I th- She left Israel after her father died in 1949, supposedly for a year, promising everyone she'd return. She did not, re- I mean, she returned, but she lived in America, married my father. I think there was enormous amounts of projected guilt that we didn't live in Israel, that we had more money than her relatives, You know, I think the specter for her was the worst thing we could be were like spoiled American children. I mean, I went around my entire childhood thinking, why don't I have – I mean, I'm sure this – I was idealizing the Jewish mother who's self-sacrificing, who wants everything for the children, but this certainly wasn't my mother.
2: And it seemed like your mother resented having to have given up her life in Frankfurt and, you know – start over basically because of the circumstances and i'm so curious how you think the specter of the holocaust looms in sort of american jewish yeah. mental psyche Psy- like how psyche. what how, it just seems like just that kind of trauma that's kind of psychic trauma has to have enormous rippling effects
3: i don't know about my father who lost a sister in the camps and other close relatives my mother also lost very immediate relatives But my father wasn't so communicative. I know from my mother, it was an ongoing reference. It existed as a dire standard against which everything else paled. All suffering didn't add up to the suffering of the Holocaust. I didn't like camp or was unhappy at camp. She wrote, you could be in concentration camp. How this has ever helped any child in a sleepaway camp, I don't know. But she had a certain fascination with Nazism. I mean, she wrote, she herself wrote, she wrote a story about go, attending an, mm-hmm. um, a Nazi rally, which she did. Um, And being kind of moved, being, being like, hey, yeah. look at these guys. <laughs> right. yeah. She's like, I get it. Yeah. Right, right. But it's an interesting thing that you asked, because I wonder a lot in adulthood what it's like to not grow up with that as a sort of grim model if, in, in, if i felt so much a part of our
1: you're asking the wrong people in this room you're right you're asking the wrong yeah, no, people. we no don't idea. know and so this is um this is the production some years in the making you've been working on this book for, forever for a while um Yum. this is both uh a question you've been grappling with since you were probably what five uh, and at the same time, something you uh, have observed, sort of—I um, I don't want to say from the outside because one never does—but uh, for the for the purposes of writing a book and organizing a, a narrative into into you know a coherent structure. So, how do you even approach it? Fifteen years of work. Is there is there a is there kind of a a way in which you said, okay, well, here is I'm going to order this. Uh, right. What were some of, t- Tell me about writing this book. Is what I'm
3: asking. I collected enough research to sink a ship on every subject from postpartum, depression, childhood depression, depression, elderly depression. I had files and files and files. I also went through three publishers, and they all said we're interested in the personal story, which in some way I obviously wanted to avoid in some way, even though I tell it. it. Is it in Macbeth or Lear that one of them says edgar or someone says god stick up for bastards so i sort of felt like stick up for the depressed of the world who don't who are silent mostly um when i wrote the new yorker piece i got enormous amounts of mail that had been many many years before but i kept in mind one letter which was that a woman wrote me that she wished her sister had read the article and gone into a hospital and not committed suicide. Because I think the notion of hospitalization is very frightening. So I wanted very much that there would be, you know, more than one hospitalization, which is true of my life. I didn't want to self-help the book and say, and now if you drink orange juice every day and run around the park... You too will be happy. You will be free of this... But I also didn't want to leave it, you know, in a sort of Beckett-like way. I can't go on. I will go on. There is no future. There is. So I sort of there is where I began to pull in my actual life that I've navigated. That you learn to navigate depression.
1: So now that this now that this work is over, uh, or temporarily over, uh, and and the book is out, is there um. Is there some sort of shift in feeling? Is there a kind of a, uh, huh? Well, you know, I've I've conquered this challenge. I'm ready for new ones, or is or or is the cycle, um, kind of the waxing and waning still going on? I I don't mean emotionally, psychologically. I mean just in terms of your relationship to to this malady.
3: I think there is some sense, not that I've put it behind me, since obviously it's part right. of me. But its hold on me has lessened. You know, it's not sort of the subtext of everything. Right. That I want to move on post-depression, if one can call it that.
1: So your prescription is to spend
3: 15 years yes. <laughs> grappling no, with No, I it. have no prescription. <laughs> Certainly not my own model.
2: Daphne Merkin, thanks so much. Daphne's new book is This Close to Happy, A Reckoning with Depression. Thank Hallelujah. you so much. That was Thank amazing. You. Wow,
0: And now our Gentile of the Week, this is an interview I recorded a few months ago when I was at the Canuga Conference Center down in North Carolina. You guys remember me. Pimping That event for a long, long time. I was down there with this uh, retired Episcopal priest named Ed Bacon. Now, some of you remember Ed because he was a guest on uh, Oprah's show a number of times. He's also the author of a terrific book called Eight Habits of Love, Open Your Heart, Open Your Mind, which none other than Desmond Tutu said left him tingling with excitement. Yes, Ed Bacon made Desmond Tutu tingle. Let's pause on that for a moment. Desmond Tutu read Ed Bacon's book. And then he tingled. Anyway, Ed Bacon uh, is very well known in the Episcopalian circles uh, for having led a very multi-ethnic, diverse parish uh, outside Los Angeles, and he's a frequent guest speaker. He's now retired, living back in the South uh, to be near his grandkids, but he's one of the more thoughtful and interesting people when it comes to interreligious dialogue and social justice issues. And I sat down with him in the chapel at Canoga. So this was after evening prayers when everyone had cleared out, and he and I had some time just just to ourselves back in November and that's why you hear the, the beautiful resonant echo is because I just put my little recorder between me and him and the pews and the altar to and God. You. Do you think it's important for me to be Christian? No. Why not?
4: Because it's not important for any of us to be Christian. God is not a Christian.
0: So then why have this church? We're sitting here in a chapel. Why? Because. Why do we do this? Why do you do this? Because it it makes me whole.
4: Um, I was born in Christianity, but I deconstructed my Christianity because it was fundamentalistic, bigoted, and homophobic. And I knew that it was plus lots of other good stuff. I mean supportive of the KKK. Don't know what right. Right? All, the good, all,
0: all the good stuff. Terroristic words. All the good stuff.
4: So it was not for me. And yet I love Jesus. I mean, Jesus is this wonderfully gentle and courageous, inclusive person. And after 9-11, um, a group of us in, in Los Angeles are, were the kind of interfaith community there. And so after 9-11, we immediately went to the mosque on Vermont Avenue in Los Angeles. We prayed together and kind of said to the world, we have our Muslim brothers and sisters back. hmm Jews, Christians, Hindus, atheists—we were all there. And then one night we gathered at the USC Mosque, and an Imam spoke, and um, Fatih Osman, and he said, "To be religious in the 21st century is to be interreligious." That was like one of the most clarion calls I have ever received. It became a mantra for me. I became began to read the scripture as an interreligious document. I mean. The Bible's not a Western document anyway, right? And it is not about just Judaism or Christianity, I think. It is about life. It is about love. It is about love overcoming fear. It is about compassion and forgiveness. It is about justice. That's what it's about more than it's being a Jewish document or a Christian document or whatever. And I began to look at Jesus as an interfaith, interreligious character and look at all the time... Jesus spends with non believers and holding up Samaritans, a very different religion than his Jewish religion. So I said, hmm, this guy I follow was an interreligious person. He was certainly not doctrinaire and doing any kind of dogma. What he told people was that the whole law was summarized, you know, and putting good, you know, God love and neighbor love together. That's what it's about. So, to the degree that we have to do any kind of bowing to doctrine and dogma to you know kind of kind of keep the dogs at bay, we'll do that. But what's really important is for us to do this compassion, forgiveness, inclusion, healing, justice, peace thing. So, where was your first uh, your first pulpit? So, my first pulpit, interestingly enough, was back at my alma mater. They, at which, Vanderbilt or your, no, this your undergrad was at Mercer? At Mercer yeah, okay, at yeah. Mercer and making. Georgia and my mentor there had been promoted and he said we need you to come and minister to the students who are disaffected about religion and to establish an interfaith house now here's where all my interfaith stuff comes from and so I had all sorts of faiths have services there I had services there on Sunday afternoon Sunday night throughout the week and I did that for six years and then the Episcopalians came and asked me to come to their church and teach them Bible. My wife and I started going to church there. I was also doing the campus ministry stuff back on campus. And then one day we turned to one another and said, we are
0: Episcopalians. So how did you get to Pasadena where you had all the famous people in your congregation? So
4: I had um, three really great jobs in Georgia. And then that led to my being the dean of the cathedral in Jackson, Mississippi. There's a saying in Mississippi that, in Mississippi, Jackson, the state capital, is an oasis in the state. And inside the state capital of Jackson, there's an oasis, which is the cathedral where I was the dean. So many of the people were with me in terms of race. But those days, when I was the dean, the big issue squaring off fighting... The women... No, not women priests. No, women priests are already done. Gay, gay, gay. So, I had to keep saying we are not going to put our head into the sand about this. We have people in this in these pews who are gay, and they are scared
0: to be themselves. Did they were they out to the congregation, or just out to you? They were just out to me, and but you knew who they were. But I knew who they were. So, what happened?
4: We made progress, and then Pasadena came and called. Because they were blessing same-sex unions, and they heard that I was progressive on this issue. And they came, and they said, you've got the chops to do this, and will you continue blessing same-sex unions? I said, oh, yes, absolutely. And soon I I continued to to bless gay relationships, and then when Prop 8 was defeated, and then we had a little window of opportunity. We married like 45 couples in 30 days or something, and all Saints Pasadena. And then later, we had
0: the victory. So you've been mentored by a Jew. You've known lots of Jews. Typically, we, we present you with a Jewish expert. You're as, as Gentile of the Week, you have the, the, a moment where you can ask something of a Jew. And it could be about me, but it could also be about Judaism more generally, anything that you've ever wondered or been curious about. Is there anything left to ask that I could help you with? So you said... Um, In
4: effect, you said the canon is closed. The revelation has stopped, and therefore it's up to us. So my question to you is, yes, I agree, it's up to us. But does does that mean, or does that have to mean that revelation is over? Hasn't the God who spoke to Moses and to David and to the prophets isn't that God still speaking just as forcefully and epiphanically and with just as much revelation today as to those people?
0: You know, I don't... I have taken what I, as an amateur Jewish theologian, think is the teaching of Judaism, and I, if I'm to be honest, because it makes sense to me, I, I teach it as if it's... Uh, as if it's doctrine, Um, my understanding is that we, we tend to treat prophecy as having closed. That makes sense to me. Because there is such a strong emphasis, and there are stories from the Talmud, very famous and oft-repeated story about, um, you know, how the the two scholars, two rabbis are quarreling, and they finally turn to God, and God says, it's not in heaven, you know, it's with you. That is a, that is a near canon, I mean, it is canonical in that it's Talmud, but it's oral Torah, it's not written Torah, and, and oral Torah goes on, people keep writing, people keep doing, you know, midrashim, people keep reading scriptures for what they can tell us, people keep issuing new, um, rulings, right? Um, but that's pretty, pretty authoritative. That it's for us to figure out. I think that if I wonder if the question you're asking is, don't Jews also sometimes in prayer hear a way forward out of their problems that seems to have been bequeathed, and, gifted them by God in that moment? And I'm sure there are Jews who do. I'm sure there are Jews who do. Um, I think that they probably are in some of the more mystical traditions, the Neo Hasidic and Renewal traditions. Um, who, if you're looking for Jews, who would talk about it as God having spoke to them? It's just not very Jewish language, right? Um, but didn't it happen to Buber and didn't it happen to Heschel? I mean, didn't it happen to Rosenzweig? I mean, didn't they feel that God had said something to them? Or yeah, probably, probably. I guess I just I would be so hesitant to talk about that as revelation because revelation is, I mean. Is it revelation like, you know, Yermayahu got, like Isaiah got, like Hosea, like Amos? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they were, God gave them a message, which they then had to go bring to people at great cost to themselves. And um, it seems to me that Jews and most Christians have essentially made it impossible to see anyone. Doesn't contemporary tradition seem to say that anyone who comes bearing God's word is probably to be. We're to be wary of them.
4: The tradition does, but I don't think Jesus does.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: I think Jesus said, you judge a tree by the fruit of bears. Now, I am not endorsing some jack coming up and saying, I am the Messiah and I have, I'm a new prophet. Blah, blah, blah. No, you have to have a community around you, buddy, to, to, you know, that says, this person's life is really manifesting something that is the way forward. And I think that's,
0: that's who Heschel was for me. For, but for Christians, that solves a problem, which is that Christians, Protestants, have been working, laboring under the shadow of literalism. Right. for a long time, right? So the way that you talk to Southern Baptists and say, look, maybe we have to love our gay brothers and sisters and let them marry, is you say, there's some really wonderful people whom we can observe saying these things, and maybe God's working through them. I don't think Judaism has the same problem because the rabbinic work continues. In other words, there's no, even among the, the ultra-Orthodox, there's no sense that um, that we have to stop mining scripture for new wisdom, there are rabbis who do it. That, I mean, there, there are people, you know, when you go to an ultra-Orthodox community, the women work because the noble thing for a man to do is to, is to learn all day, right? And so I think that um, the, the model is much more if you have a community of super-learned guys, alas, and we're trying to, you know, my tradition is trying to expand that to include super-learned women mm-hmm. whose familiarity with the tradition is so strong that they're going to find the new ways forward within the human tradition. Well, mm-hmm. let me put it this way. I think that there's definitely room in the Jewish tradition for people, and again, you mentioned something, we're talking about Rosenzweig, we're talking about Buber, we're talking about people who've had, who've said, then something spoke to me and, and kept me from making a mistake or pushed me along the path or something. I think there's definitely room for those people, but I don't think there's a sense that they're holier. In other words, it's not that they've been touched by God. Mm-hmm. They don't become quasi-saints in the way that I think, for example, well, certainly Catholics have saints. And I think that in Protestantism, certain people kind of get raised up. You know, you you talk about Merton that way, right? right? And um, Judaism, it's nice that Buber had that, but he's still, he's a philosopher. He was a professor. People argue about him. Some think he's mediocre. Some think he's terrific. There's no sense that a consensus has formed around his having been touched, having had a kind of theophany,
4: right. and
0: that that left him marked as special. Yeah. Whereas I think in Christianity there's a sense that from time to time, I mean, in Catholicism it's very explicit, right? Because those are the people who get sainted. That from time to time people come along for whom the 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 world got very thin, the membrane got so thin between them and God that they touch something the rest of us haven't. And I don't think that um, it, in Judaism you don't get that credit until you've been dead three hundred years. Mm. All right. Father Ed, thank you so much. You're very welcome, my brother Mark. A sweet, sweet mailbox this week. Myra Feiger writes, I've been listening to your podcast since the beginning. I look forward each week. Thank you. Meanwhile, however, Mark used the term the promised land to describe Israel. I've always felt that's the term that Christians use. On a trip to Israel a few years back with my synagogue, we shared the gate area with a Christian group. A woman walked up to me and asked, are you going to the promised land? As the hair on the back of my neck bristled, I answered, no, we're going to Israel. Thoughts? Is promised land a goyish term?
2: I call it the. Pro- I use it the, the promised land as like in display copy on the website. Yeah, like I know. feel like it's it's a, it's, a, it's a easier way than saying Israel. Um, like in. Maya's right.
1: It's not like there's you know like a like a book in which there's like a promise about this land. Um, uh, or or that's it's been like a big deal to like Jews for some sh- years. Sh- sh- I'll sh- only sh- say sh- it's all good.
0: I'll only say that a Yeah, that's a, right.
1: Judaism is not a religion. It's just a club for people who love Seinfeld we'll and Legos. I'm un- un-
2: pinching him. No,
1: there's an unpinch from another, <laughs> uh, another that's writer. Right. Another uh, we got writer. a letter saying, unpinch, Liel. Yeah. Unpinch, Liel.
2: Pinches cannot be unpinched. By the
1: way, the the person who wrote the uh, the unpinched letter is, of course, a person um, who is a Jew by choice, right? Or or as we say, converting to Judaism, which, of course, like if you're a sensible person, you're like,
0: oh, wow, look, that this is like, uh, comment vous dit, a freaking religion. I'm just going to say that to Myra Flager, there is a podcast produced by Israeli TV in English. You can listen to it called The Promised Podcast. So right. take it up with them. But thanks for writing. It could be uncomfortable J- listening to that too. Here's another listener. Dear J. Crew. OK, I have to stop here. You guys, the listeners, are the J. Crew. We are just your hosts. But you, the community, are the J. Crew. And uh, you guys I sure
2: are made well. Not a – dear uh. J. Crew. <laughs>
0: Dear J. Crew, not a comment or a question, just an observation. Has anyone ever pointed out how much Mark looks like Daniel Radcliffe? If there's ever a Harry Potter sequel in which Harry is a dad sending his kids to Hogwarts, Mark is a shoe-in for the role, keep up the good work. Mark and Stephanie are terrific, but Liel <laughs> is my favorite.
3: It's ben a big <laughs>
1: Has Dan anyone Vulture. ever ever noticed that Mark looks like Daniel? He, like, he was yeah. like, Mark, how
2: do I get my letter in, read on air for in sure? Every, <laughs>
1: in every sexual role-playing game he's ever had in his mind or in real life, oh Mark has noticed that. Guys. Mark, Guys, you've, you've, oh you've never, you've never so, gone so,
0: like, down
2: that path? You've
0: Harry never Potter been like, look at me. as a, I'm the chosen as one. As a kink? Yeah. No? I would own it if I had. Should I f- we
2: get Mark Seinfeld back on the show I from his classic? I think you know
0: what you're doing tonight. Uh, Justin Crow from Williamstown writes in and says, uh, as per a recent episode, when you said that there are very few Jewish boys named uh, Morris anymore, there's still at least one nice Jewish boy named Morris, Morris Israel, age six, Williamstown, Massachusetts. Oh That's the the son of his friend, Jeff Israel. Morris Israel, this shows for you. Morris Israel, um, you're, you're like a hero.
1: I choose him as our leader. Like <laughs> right now at age six, like the young Dalai Lama. Let's start training
0: him to lead the Jews. Hey there, J. Crew. I would like to receive the newsletter. Also, I wanted to share a funny story about the podcast. Many episodes back, Liel received a letter in which he was called a douche canoe by a listener. How could you forget? How could you forget? I'm so happy you mentioned who the letter was written by because it happened to be written by a close family friend of mine who had moved away 10 plus years ago. Imagine his surprise when, after 10 years, I sent him a lone Facebook message saying, douche canoe? Douche canoe? Thanks for the laughs. I look forward to listening every week. You keep me sane. Miranda Leah McClellan.
2: This is my favorite letter in the entire world. Same here.
0: See, hatred of me really brings people back together.
2: <laughs> it unites It unites America, friends. yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't think that's hatred of you. I think that's like you've gotten douche canoe out into the world of, of memes.
2: I, I also think that there's like there's literally no world smaller than the Jewish podcast listening world. <laughs>
0: We're trying to make it bigger all the time. I would like to welcome some new subscribers to our newsletter. This week, it is the robust and well-peopled law firm of Stacey Snyder, Eli Mellon, Jacob Aji, Dahlia Sporn, Lauren Bostrom, Beth Glicker, Douglas Brill, Lizzie Scheibel, Raifa Shams, Ben Sass. not the senator. There's no E at the end. That's, Jen that's, that's what he
1: would like you to think.
0: Totally right. amazing. senator. Senator Ben is listening. Uh, Jen Trudell, Pamela Wolfman, Perry Molinoff, and Jessica Prince. I would just like to say about Douglas Brill that the fact that he has squandered the family fortune earned founding Brill Cream and the fact that he's prematurely bald and doesn't even need Brill Cream, which means that his grandfather wrote him out of the will, thus sending him into a life of acting out that ended in the crime of embezzling the fortune, all of that does not mean that we're not proud to have him as a listener, Douglas Brill. What about Chase Montavon? I think Chase Montavon is a Jewish Ricardo Montalban
2: he's a jewish inigo montoya
1: my name is chase montovan
2: you killed my abba. you
1: you you shortchanged my father <laughs> in the real estate deal
0: <laughs> prepare to be taken to the
1: appropriate court
0: <laughs> to get the newsletter sign up at tabletmag.com or send an email begging for it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com uh, mazel tov of the week who wants to go first i'll go first
1: um, right. I would like to extend a very hearty mazel tov to our listener and, and fan and champion of Jewish literature on the internet, editor for the wonderful Fig Tree Books, Erica Dreyfus. Yay. Uh, this one's for you.
2: She's the best. What are you
1: mazel toving her for? Being a just really be great. great listener and uh, just yeah, a she great is. person and promoter of you know all, all good things online. Stephanie?
2: Oh, I got one. It's to the British Jewish writer Francesca Siegel, whose first book a few years ago was The Innocents and won like a gazillion uh, debut literary and non-debut literary awards. Um, she has a new book out this spring and I had a chance to read it. It's called um, The Awkward Age and it's really great. And I'm just so excited for her and she's wonderful and sounds really classy because she has a British accent.
0: Right. Nice. Um I have two. The first is, is just a mazel tov to our recent guest, John McWhorter, the linguist. I read his book Talking Back, Talking Black, which is an, his defense of black English as its, own, uh, as its own dialect, its own language essentially. It's brilliant and funny and interesting and smart. Um, I also want to say that I started listening to his podcast, Lexicon Valley, which is part of the, the Panoply Network, and it is my new favorite podcast. I mean the, the episode where he interviews the worldwide expert on the usage of like um, is – Astonishing! The episode where he talks about how language has changed since the 1930s, how words were pronounced differently back then, like why they used to say guacamole instead of guacamole, is it's just priceless. If you're a language nerd, Lexicon Valley. But then I also want to hand the Mazel Tov mic over to our listener Douglas Brill, of whom we spoke earlier. He writes: I have a Mazel Tov for my niece Leah Paz, who turned me on to your podcast. She just got engaged. Since she told me about you I've been listening to each episode and going deep into past podcasts to fill my miserable Los Angeles commute. So Leah, big mazel Tov from Uncle Doug but also from us and especially for me and Liel because we are both ordained and if you need anyone to perform your wedding, you know, you know, you know where to find us.
2: Leah Paz follows me on Instagram. I did see yes. that she just got engaged on the like the pier at Venice in Venice in, in California not the real one but um yeah, Mazel Tov.
0: Mazel mazel tov. tov. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine, on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson. We're produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Tolushkin. Rabbinic supervision is by the whole gang from the Tel Aviv meetup, or at least those who sent me the proper spelling and pronunciation of their names afterwards. That would include Eitan Marks, Sammy Klaskin, Eliana Sagarin, Hannah Green, and Rebecca Roberts. Our kosher slaughtering is by Trump Care. May it rest in peace find Tablet Magazine on Facebook and on Twitter we're at Tablet Mag and I am at Markop1 Stephanie is at Stuffism Liel is at Liel and Alyssa Goldstein is at BookMoth with an underscore at Book underscore Moth Uh, our music is by Golem. we record in Argo Studios which is so ready to filibuster Neil Gorsuch we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network Shalom friends